What up, Craig? Show us your robot pubes. <laughs> uh, no, I've been I've been recently kicking around. Yeah, that idea of Data's um, well hair down there, and let's assume that I, I like to believe the thing that the unique and useful thing I've come across with this is that he would probably stubble it out to experience the inconvenience and mild aggravation of human existence. I like the idea of it not being like um, push out play doh hair, but like um, retractable, like cat's claws. <laughs> Like oh, so if, it's Wolverine, if Wolverine had adamantium pubes, basically. Well, like, like he has to hold it in, not hold it out, you know? Oh, God, like right he's like running around with his legs crossed, like, oh, no, the bush. <laughs> no, he's just doing Coming. like a special kind of android kegel. It's not like, <laughs> like he's got full control of the systems. He just has to attend to that. It's like he has to keep that, keep that wheel spun up and retracted so it doesn't when they all come out. of his processing power is already devoted to, is always devoted to keeping his pubes in. Keeping all of his body hair (laughs) retracted for maximum airflow. So, Uh, well, that's probably as good as Paul's uh, ricochet sound. Can they be used as a weapon? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to say yes, but it is very close proximity. You're probably better off using, you know, any of the numerous phasers or his just mechanically strong <laughs> hands. Uh, he could take one of his legs off and beat you to death with it. Okay, well, that's a lot of options. Right now, Andres is wondering what kind of a podcast. So anyway, right that's now. as good a place to start it as any. Welcome to K-Space yeah. Communism, the only podcast that has been banned on the world of Ferenginar for inciting mass riots of the workers. My name is Paul Byron, and I am among the K-Space Communists today. Who else is here on the bridge? Amy Hassel. I'm Corey Archibald. I'm Rachel Kahn. And what's this? Everyone's wearing their finest Federation dress uniforms because look, it's a diplomatic envoy from, well, apparently 21st century Earth, which is where we all live. So hi, Corey, please, please tell us your guests. Tell us all about them. Oh, y'all, I'm so excited to have my friend Andres Bernal with us today. I've gotten to know him a little bit through my work with Brand New Congress. He's uh, done some some work with a few candidates that we've worked with. And right now, he is a senior policy advisor for Diane Morales for New York City Mayor. He's worked with AOC. He's worked with Lauren Ashcraft. He's also a lecturer of urban studies at CUNY Queens College. And the main reason why I wanted him to be able to join us for this conversation today is because he is a a scholar and an advocate for the modern monetary theory. uh, And of course, a big advocate for the Green New Deal. But I really want to focus on the modern monetary theory part of it today because I have been trying to wrap my brain around how in the world does the economy work in Trek when we have the Federation that says we've evolved beyond the the need for money and it it just a lot of things about the the whole setup just don't make any sense to me and so I'm hoping that Andres is going to be here to uh, to help us figure out how this kind of thing could be possible in the future so welcome Andres thank you hi thank you for having me so happy to be here we are so happy to have you. This is so exciting. Not just because um, for those who listen to Not Safe for Wonks, we are totally close friends with Lauren Ashcraft. She's awesome. She actually uh, coined our catchphrase, capitalism is cringe. And you know, obviously we do want to climb the ladder to AOC. But also, you just come so highly recommended. Uh, and oh my goodness. I am so excited about MMT generally because I have been screaming into the void uh, that money is fake. <laughs> well, I mean, no, everyone's heard you. It's just that they still have to pay their landlords with it. Like, we're like, yeah, we know, but the bank. It's a fake thing we all agreed on, kind of like the tooth fairy. 
I feel like that's it. That I, I mean, let's all. I let's never signed on, up for the tooth fairy. I'm let, sorry. Let, let's let Andre unpack the differences between tooth fairy <laughs> and money. Uh, go. Maybe okay. Unicorns. Sure. I mean, you know, I somebody brought this up on Twitter the other day, and you know, my response to this is kind of like money is quote unquote fake, or rather, a social construct in the same way that like language is. So when we think of like English, you know, it's completely made up by us, and yet we would kind of not know how to function without a language, whether it's English or any other language in, in the world right now. So words and uh, ideas are all kinds of things that we, we use to make sense of our world, and money plays that role uh, as well. Okay, you say that, but what if I used the money to build a tower so tall I could poke God in the eye? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> So, is that what Elon Musk is doing? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, dear. Definitely. Is that you, Chris Brenner? Brenner Information Systems? No, no, you're the you're the bad one from Voyager. You're Ed Begley Jr., aren't you? Mm. So, I mean, jokes about, you know, money being a unicorn or the tooth fairy aside, you know, I, I do think that framing is really uncommon for how people think about money, right? Because a lot of people think about money as this, like, inherently valuable thing. It's like a simulacrum, right? But in the sort of same way that the simulacrum is itself a reflection of a reflection of a reflection that becomes sort of perceived as its own real thing in spite of its lack of tangible connection to, like, material reality, right? How can we we reframe people's ideas about money to get them to sort of understand that it is sort of a social agreement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's really important. And, you know, in the MMT world, there's like different conversations being had. So the one that's most common that people hear out there is kind of like conversations about policy. So you have people like Stephanie Kelton, who just published the deficit myth. And, you know, it's New York Times bestseller. And she's out there talking to wonks. And she was Bernie Sanders, chief economist and whatnot. So that's kind of like a very policy conventional oriented conversation. And that conversation is trying to disrupt and sub subvert, you know, like 50 years of just total BS when it comes to policy and money. But then there's a deeper conversation, which I think speaks to what you are bringing up, which is like conversations about money are much deeper than just, you know, kind of formal policy. And they're really speaking to like how we understand our, our culture and the conventional and orthodox way that we understand money and have kind of understood money for the majority of, you know, the industrialized world. It has kind of had us in a stranglehold that has limited our imaginations about what is possible. And that has been very politically convenient for elites. And it has kind of like disrupted our imaginations. And I, you know, I think it's very connected to the history of colonialism. I think it's very connected to this whole idea that you need gold, like gold is what gives value to money. You know, that was a historical event that the British Empire played a huge role in like forcing everyone around the world to believe that whoever had the most gold, uh, in, you know, in the, in the more modern context would have value to their money. And they imposed that on the world's ability to spend and whatnot, right? But it wasn't always that way well actually can we stop for a second and ask i just sort of sure. ask like my understanding of why gold is useful as a monetary item and we've talked about this in terms of like latinum in star trek is that it is ultimately very distillable and something you can easily separate from other metals and very easily shape and form and sort of portion making it a very not necessarily a store of actual value but a reliable medium for uh, essentially a medium of exchange so it's only actual 
currency value is that, well, you can cut it up into chunks and you can make sure it's not full of lead and the various other metallurgical features that aren't related to gold. Is that, am I, am I, am I like, hold, is that correct in sort of a conception or is there something more to it in that? I mean, I mean, I think that that certainly played a role in why gold became kind of the standard that was used. But oftentimes that gets taken to kind of the extreme of like, that is what gives money value, period. I think that, yeah, like when the modern world was kind of globalizing, we've had many phases of quote unquote globalization, but, you know, finding some kind of thing to designate as this universal unit of account. And we can talk more about that uh, in a sec. Yeah, maybe it easy to do that with something like gold but like as i was mentioning the the history when when, when people hear modern money it, the modern modern money actually interestingly enough is speaking to modern not in like the last 30 or 50 years or anything like that but just since the origin of like language and writing writing specifically that's what's modern about it which is really not so modern but uh to kind of give some meaning to to what i'm to what i'm rambling about here from the beginning what most of the historical and anthropological evidence suggests is that money emerged through writing as like a record and accounting keeping system to keep track of the different debts and obligations that people had to one another to avoid blood feuds and to kind of mediate and coordinate the social participation of everybody in the collective and whatnot. And that story has been very much submerged and pushed aside because of kind of the orthodox story, which is oftentimes in economics, this is called the orthodoxy or neoclassical economics, which is what dominates today. And that story says something very different, but I think everybody has heard of this story. And that story is that like in the beginning, people were trading bartering different things with one another. We just kind of like woke up one day and we were like, oh, I'm going to trade this for that. And and everybody was just bartering and trading. And that was kind of the well, found. The, yeah, this Go is ahead. your lock. You're mixing your labor with the fruits of nature and yeah. sort of that form of liberal property as you kind of get it, which sort of leads into one of the things that I always have difficulty getting across to people, possibly just because America is full of like very well propagandized on this, but like ultimately the private property itself, like the mechanism of private ownership that we have is like gold only chosen because it is of convenience to the society and its members and not 100%. an absolute authority. It's not, there's not some biblical or sort of divine authority. We've just decided, Hey, it'd be cool if like, okay, what's, what if we just, instead of you having to fight me every week, we just decide this is where the fucking fence goes. And then we go from there because we can't we obviously can't cooperate otherwise we'd be doing that and is that like how do you like what other, yeah. what other options do we have yeah like, oh, where does I, that go? I, I love that you bring up Locke because that's exactly what it is it's kind of this enlightenment conception and like big thought experiment that also produced Adam Smith's ideas and the invisible hand and all kind of the market society individual based understanding of, of who we are and, and what human nature is so like yeah this state of nature idea that people were out in the pasture and they were just trading with one another and they owned their body and so that was the kind of basis for private property and whatnot. And through trade, eventually people realized, hey, well, maybe we should create a state. And they all kind of came into agreement into a social contract. And then they decided, well, bartering is kind of difficult. So let's find something to be making like, change for a goat. I mean, right. Like if, yeah. if it's just a difficult thing to break up into pieces, if I don't have enough for the whole goat, nor do I want the whole goat and you don't want that much straw or whatever the fuck it is I make. Right, right. You're a goat herd, so you're a very fancy person in this scenario, just to be clear. Exactly. And so it turns out that this is just something that Locke and later Smith and all of these people, mostly dudes, completely fucking made up. And 
And and if you're following the Western tradition of philosophy, mostly because they didn't have the courage to say there is no God, because someone would have, to be fair, someone would have killed them and wouldn't have let them publish their book. So they all said, there's definitely the God, whichever God where I live, that guy exists. And this is why <laughs> that's fine. And that's, right. I mean, again, process of the times. Descartes could have definitely gotten to, oh, shit, there's nothing. But again, they would have killed him. Uh, so, you know, people writing sort of are trying to, I, a lot of that is this way too, where like, oh, well, uh, I, uh, the crowns, yeah, no, they exist. They're good. Love them. Yeah. And, and and even Descartes, like that conception that that we have like this dualistic separation between the world and our minds in our individual minds and then everything out there and that that dualism kind of structures all of reality. Like, I think that also plays a huge role in what leads then later to this kind of methodological individualism. So, yeah, as it turns out, that's all nonsense. And another reason, I think, uh, in addition to what you were saying is they didn't know what to make like all of these British and Europeans. They didn't know what to make of the new world and the indigenous people that they had that they were conquering at the time um you mean so, you guys are just hanging out yeah like, right with, well, don't y'all have jobs or something where's your bank but even 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 more so than that because i think a lot of indigenous systems actually did have their own institutions to do what we would call today credit issuing or, or things like that perhaps differently but i think the point was they projected this sense of infantilizement onto indigenous people to be like oh they're all just like hanging out like children they're they must be like one with nature and this ended up connecting a lot with you know biblical ideas of like eden and the state of nature and like primitive humans and so they were like oh it's even the ones that were trying to like rationalize a non-colonial mindset even rousseau uh, they they were still kind of infantilizing all the indigenous people and being like well we're kind of like the more evolved rational humans you know we, we shouldn't be so mean to them either but you know clearly they're they're at like this primitive state of human development and uh, we see a lot of that today but uh, you know the foundation of kind of modernism and much of what drives the culture today is founded on these principles and money in the economy is in and how we understand what the economy is is definitely driven by all of this so that's kind of to say that all of that is fundamentally wrong <laughs> at least right. I, I would think yeah <laughs> well i mean there's like an infinite amount of stuff to unpack around like specifically christianity and western concepts of like dominion um i want to just for a second reference Did a book that i think is the dominion Haha. Well, so I want to I want to sort of related to this reference an amazing book I've been reading. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, and it's by, oh gosh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, who is an indigenous person uh, who in the book actually talks about sort of these cultural differences in the perception of ownership and value and property that existed, mm. right? Um, and I mean, obviously, because Christianity in particular was so steeped in patriarchy and this sort of concept of, you know, dominion and responsibility to be the leader and teach other people your ways and convert them to, you know, this correct thinking in the form of Western culture, basically. That itself, I think, has sort of imprinted on and shaped everything since then, everything since, you know, this land was invaded and taken away from the indigenous people. Um, and so you could almost kind of say that, like, right now, we're in this stage where we've sort of supplanted Christian God with an equally angry God in the form of money, uh, and we are all in fact in hell, right? Star Trek, on the other hand, you know, or at the very least, the gay space communist future we all crave is post money, right? And in the sort of intermediate 
as Marx laid it out, right, we should expect this stage of socialism while we are intentionally breaking the money addiction and sort of creating structures to undo the sort of damage, the psychic damage that has been caused by these ideas of dominion and ownership and property and money. And so I guess like my question really is, like, are they communist? Are they more socialist still? Like, once we start talking about, like, intergalactic communism, can we really, like, ever have it? Or is it sort of going to be a continual socialist process trying to, like, approximate, you know, this sort of utopian vision? So two things I would say. The first one is to what you laid out about dominion and certain conceptions of property and whatnot. I would also add sovereignty as a concept, too. Uh, as playing a, a fundamental role in kind of constructing the hierarchical, brutal world that we have now, this idea that sovereignty is this like force of will that exists in, in individuals and then gets kind of projected upwards towards the conception of the nation state, and that this thing called the nation state has its own sovereignty. That's also something that that's very problematic about who we are. However, and here is where I think I take like a left turn. I don't think that money is the problem. And I don't think that reaching a post money world is like the straightforward answer. I think that's part of the myth of what modernity has told us. And, and, and this might piss some people off. But you know, that's kind of been part of the fun of all of this. I think Marx also got this wrong. And uh, <laughs> no pun intended, becomes the other side of the coin of Smith and Locke and the modernists and his understanding of all of this too. So, right. yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem that, I, okay, the other huge factor that's playing into all of this is that the Franciscan order and the influences of the Franciscan order from the Catholic Church, from Christianity as we know it, they hated money. And it's a really interesting, and I, I recommend a podcast called Money on the Left, where they do a lot of, of these interviews to talk about like deconstructing money. And they actually do one specifically on a scholar of the Franciscan order and of this of the medieval Europe. They hated money, but like they were like very wealthy elite people who would like do this whole thing about how like money itself like this is this thing that's evil and we should all deprive ourselves of it and and a lot of what ends up being like the attitude of the of the conquerors on on the indigenous people in the americas is like going back to this kind of concept of infantilization oh you poor children like look how poor they are like we should learn to kind of live among them in poverty so there's this conception of austerity and like how there's never enough and we should kind of like limit ourselves as much as possible and everything right. is a zero-sum game right absolutely right so all of that with kind of the greed and the supremacy that's coming as well is all structuring the modern world so we have like we end up having the system where on one hand conquered and it's all about dominion and control and in instrumentality as you said and on the other hand there's never enough we're running out of money we don't have enough everything's a zero-sum game so we got to do trade-offs the world and life is a big trade-off Right. That is, that's the foundation for modern orthodox economics right there. Right. Well, and of course, it's so convenient that, you know, we romanticize poverty and like, oh, really, the people in poverty are the noble ones. And right. Exactly. Know, oh, we should strive to be more, you know, thrifty like them, even though for them, it's like this, you know, incredibly traumatic survival experience. And like all of it is coming out of desperation and necessity. Right. Right. So orthodox economics rationalizes that and emerges by saying that, well, basically economics, it consists of 
infinite wants and needs and limited resources. And that's kind of how we do economics today. Every individual just wants stuff and has their preferences and it's infinite. And because there is scarce resources and the world is scarce, everything is a trade-off. Money is scarce as well. And the only way we can understand money is as like this private thing that people want to accumulate and uh, and we can't use it for public purposes because there's not enough out of, of it. Uh, the, <laughs> only way, the only way we can use it for things like public purposes is if we like take it from other people and tax it and whatnot. And so like Star Trek kind of goes along with that same logic. I mean, I, I love the, the values of Star Trek and the science fiction. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I was since I was a kid. I'm not like an expert on it, but but it's something that I really like. But no, I no, do you're think... an expert in something like real. That's why we brought you on. You're <laughs> okay. experts in the dumb television show. Just All right. Clear. Right. Well, so I think that like Star Trek logic tries to, or in a sense, concedes to this notion of like unlimited wants, scarce resources through the introduction of like this technological thing, the replicator as like, well, what happens if we can like deal with everybody's infinite wants and just like print stuff out of nothing, we would no longer kind of need money and we would just like do whatever we wanted. And I think like some of the inconsistencies or like the wait what uh, aspects of that is like that's that's kind of incoherent in a lot of ways because and then going back to like how this all ties to MMT. <laughs> What MMT is trying to argue, or, or what's sometimes called chartalism or neo-chartalism, which is a different school of thought from metalism, which is like the conventional story I just laid out, that everything is finite and trade based off of trade. But MMT is saying that like, no, actually what money has always been has been the way that the collective coordinates its own debts and obligations to one another. Like language, like law, the way that we structure laws and issue like rules and create institutions, money plays plays that role as well by kind of organizing participation in different kinds of ways, contributions to the collective. And it's only been through the industrial kind of revolution and onwards, whatnot, that that process, because that process had traditionally been something given to the kind of stakeholder center of a society, whether that be like a shaman or a kind of oftentimes a religious order or, um, you know, what we call now the nation state, things like that could issue credit, could issue issue IOUs, because that's really what money is. It's just an IOU, which in a sense is quote unquote fake. It's a social construct, but it's real because like we rely on social constructs to like exist. You can issue credit, you can issue these IOUs to do stuff, to tell people to produce, to make stuff that we need. But in the modern world, that got outsourced to private interests. It got outsourced to doing so to make profits. And so that's why today we only see money as like this private commodity. And I think that like we make the mistake and a lot of the left makes the mistake and even a lot of like the Marxist tradition makes the mistake of taking the right and taking orthodox economics at their word and believing that like money and capital is just this like fake thing that is private and operating on its own rules. Tiny, tiny uh, sort of distinction. I When I say fake, I sort of mean in the like, like almost digital sense, right? Like when we talk about like Aristotelian versus Boolean realities as such, like, you know, the tooth fairy is fake, but how many kids have found money under their pillowcase the next morning? Right. You know? Sure, sure. Like, and I, I think things that are not real can have real world impact all the time. Yes, actually. yes, uh, definitely. I mean, gender is a social construct, but like, exactly, exactly. right, right. The death over it, right? How, how unreal is it? 
I, I have a lot of debates with people that, you know, when it comes to gender and unpacking things like race, they're very much like, yeah, of course, it's a social construct. But then like you bring up money and they're like, what? That, that's impossible. It has to be grounded in something material or it's meaningless. It's like, no, like it's just. Well, let me um, let me bring this back to Star Trek, and I want to I want to circle back to something you were talking about with like uh, what the the infinite wants and the finite resources, because yeah. Star Trek feels like a place that's not post scarcity; it's just kind of like asymptotically approaching post scarcity. And um, so, how does that like what consequences does that have for civilizations it interacts with? Like, how does that affect the economy when, like, say, a Ferengi on Deep Space Nine can either be within the Ferengi Empire and pay rent or be on the edge of the Ferengi Empire, but in Federation space and pay no rent? Right. So I think that the problem with the way that a post or no money society framework is laid out is that it's difficult to answer these these questions because it you know it's not addressed as to like how at least to my knowledge how the federation is coordinating everything from the cards vineyard to the production of all these spaceships to the relationships they have with the rest of the i don't know galactic world or whatnot i also kind of find it interesting i don't i don't know i'm not an expert on it again but like the kind of Ferengians existing as like these people that use money and Space are out. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, wait, is this like anti-Semitism? Like what's going yes, on? Yes, yes, it is. We talk yeah, about yeah. this a lot. Let it be known, yes, yeah. they're anti-Semitic, and that only makes me love Quirk more. <laughs> well, DS9 did a lot of digging to get them out of that particular hole, I, th- I feel like. But yeah, they were yeah. originally just coded anti-Semitism. I'm well, sorry, yeah, but I'm then they just coded Quark like Jewish and queer, which apparently made it fine. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about, though. We're talking about Amy's question. So, and, But that's so critical, too. And there's an episode on this Money on the Left podcast called The Myth of the Jewish Moneylender. Because in order to like make more real or reify this notion of like money being the bad thing, there's all these stereotypes about the people that are like the evil lenders of money. And that has had this like really long history of anti-Semitism, which is actually not even historically true. But anyways... Um, well, I mean, it's actually, let's jump in for a second with a real world fun fact. It's not even true now. If you look at the right, Forbes list, the most, exactly. re- the most represented faith is... True. Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, those people that control that religion that controls the world's money supply. The Presbyterian. We're 3% of the world population, y'all. We can't run anything that big. Come on. Every single one of us would have to be in on it. And I can tell you at the very least, I'm not. So that means we can't do it. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I want to jump in here because y'all started talking about my favorite series. Deep Space Nine is the best series in, in Trek and Cisco is the best captain. I will die on this hill every single time. But it also raises a lot of questions. And I'm going to just take a second because you said a lot of very smart things because you're an extremely smart person. I'm going to dumb this down just a little bit for people like me that don't really get economics <laughs> the way that, that smart folks do. I am just, and it speaks a little bit to this, this point that you were making a moment ago about how the show didn't really explain how a society that doesn't have money is supposed to function in their relationships with other societies. But we see that play out on Deep Space Nine where Starfleet personnel are buying dinner at Quarks. Are, they have Latin to bet on games they have latinum to go buy clothes from garrick like how in the hell does any of that work how do they interact with other societies that do still have money it doesn't make any sense to me how that like is there even a a corollary real world example well i mean i think the the first problem is that uh, star trek reduces money to was it called platinum what uh, platinum 
gold pressed latinum, which actually is, it serves the same function that I described earlier for gold. It is simply unreplicable and it does not tarnish. It is stored in gold because it's not reactive, but ultimately it's its own liquid substance that they stopped. They got, I believe the quote is, got tired of making change with an eyedropper to okay. get back to our bartering. And question. gold but is yes. canonically worthless. Yeah, because you can make it. Right. Okay. So, so I think like a future society that was advanced technologically, ethically, politically, etc., would definitely not have something analogical to a gold standard. Like that's super absurd. And I think like that's one of the conceptual tensions in the show and what the show is trying to put forward because like kind of advanced civilization would not base their money on like something similarly to like how we got out of the depression and whatnot like unfortunately it, this has been used a lot for war and this kind of brings us to like the big points that mmt makes kind of like in the policy world now is that you don't want to like create artificial scarcity for your money you want to base your money on what you can do with it like in terms of like the resources you have, like the labor, the creativity and the stuff that you have to do stuff. I mean, before when we were still on the gold standard, that's why the whole world collapsed because it was like only a few countries had all the gold and poverty and, and inequality within those countries couldn't be addressed because there were like these artificial constraints on how much you could spend and money was only valuable if it represented like the gold that you had. I mean, it's totally absurd. We got out of this system and all of a sudden it's like massive deficit spending, which was what got us out of the depression mobilized for world war ii unfortunately germany used it for a fascistic genocidal imperial war machine or whatnot and then the u.s kind of has has done something similar ever since then but we could use that same logic to like build a sustainable prosperous society and that's kind of what we're arguing with the green new deal and whatnot that inversely to the notion that like economics is a bunch of individuals with infinite wants and limited resources what really is happening is that money and law which is what gives the quality to production and the quality to governance that's what's infinite and the constraints are in the form of like people and stuff and i don't mean like absolute constraints because you know we can make more of stuff we can even make more of ourselves um and and we can you know we can produce more stuff and we can have technological advancements and whatnot right but there's still limits and constraints on that so that kind of like relative well, I mean, even ultimately in a per in a fully post-scarce world there's right. still time what do we do yes. first and that yeah right and that's so key because like while time is also constrained so right now the world we're living in right now that economy didn't come into being in this moment it has been planned for years in the past so we're always planning our economy our economic production process in advance for years we're committing to what we're going to do years from now uh, and that kind of gives an interesting spin to scarcity too because like okay maybe we only have certain capacity to do things for the next year but we can commit ourselves to doing something bigger than that or, or addressing other needs in the next five to ten years and that's we're constantly doing that obviously we're constantly doing that under the the control and the command and the planning of corporations today we live in a planned economy of, of corporate power and private interests capitalism has always been that so i think like the message there is how do we plan democratically and how do we plan for the common good and money does play a role in that because it's a way that we again coordinate and keep accounting records of what we produce and, and how much we want of it and uh you know who gets what for their contributions to this system and then yeah you know have a certain place for market 
markets where they don't necessarily have to dominate our lives like they do now. Although even even markets like themselves, for example, yeah, sorry, a sex toy need not be in the mandated state provided shape. Whereas the, right? I mean, like, but a vehicle, but cars, maybe we could just make six of them and be done with it. Yeah. And, you know, I would say that it would even be in the public interest for, you know, the state to democratically provision sexual education and experiences maybe in a future advanced society. But if somebody wants to, like, create a cool toy that. Oh, look, it's Admiral Joycelyn Elders. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what the holodecks are for, guys. Get your mops. <laughs> so actually what you, what you were just talking about um actually brings up two two kind of thoughts for me um i want to go back for a second and talk a little bit more about replicators you know you, you talked about how that was a technological tool that was developed in the trek universe to kind of address people's material needs without the need for them to have to pay for it with money but at the same time one of the big things we learned from voyager and i don't know how much of that particular series you've seen one of the big things we learned from voyager is that the replicators don't produce something from nothing they actually they do require some kind of input it's not ever properly explained exactly what is required to make a replicator function but we do know that when the crew of the voyager got stranded in the in the delta quadrant that uh, they immediately had to implement replicator rations so that they wouldn't burn out that technology and uh, that's interesting yeah, I can actually, I can interject with yeah. the answer to your question there. Um, In Voyager, and as I understand it, what the replicators are doing is they are just using light and they're modifying photons kind of similarly to like the holodecks. Um, and so the reason they're rationing it is because they don't have a reliable trilithium supply. So like mm -hmm. they are sort of constantly questing to get trilithium, which is sort of the material input they need to run the warp core, which is how they get all of that energy they need to, you know, both bend space and time itself and also to make something out of, you know, quote unquote, nothing or light and energy right. alone. Which is traditionally too cheap to meter, but without yeah. your support network. Well, I mean, that is the point of Voyager, right? Is to throw them yeah. back out into the woods and see how they deal on the frontier again, which kind of where we started with, with the original. So yeah, the, the, like right. ultimately there's a resource being consumed. That's that's fascinating. It, I think like a, a shift from kind of conventional economics to something that's more accurate and better descriptive of what is actually happening in an economy is is to move away from the starting point of like even in a Star Trek world or, uh, you know, a future Voyager world or whatnot, where it's like every individual is only using a replicator to satisfy their personal needs and everybody's doing that on their own. The question really is like, as a whole, how does any of these federations coordinate like what people need and how do we have the technology that will make these machines possible? How do we produce right. it? Who makes these replicators? Also, like, I'm very curious about like who makes the ships? How do we uh, assign the different uh, people People to the and maybe those answers already exist and I just don't know but but like it, it, when we think about the system as a whole it's much right. more accurate to how an economy functions than like the starting point being individuals and their needs because all individual economic needs are also social constructs and that's the big thing that economics gets wrong because they think they're just like unlimited infinite whatever I'm going to do to satisfy myself but like all of this stuff exists in a social context like we don't grow up just having infinite needs we love learn our needs from our gender, from our schools, from our parents, from our, you know, peer systems, all of this stuff, right? And right. all of these institutions are connected to public and private money. 
whether in, in uh, sadly today more than not to private money or at least like privately controlled money because everything is for profit and everything i guess you could say has been commodified but like imagine if actually schools were well funded if everybody had housing as a human right if people had medicare for all if there were a federal job guarantee public works programs that would be the world that we would be coming into to learn about the quality of our needs and the quality of the economy. So it would look much differently. And that's kind of, I guess, the point I'm getting at with the kind of yeah. holistic coordination stuff. Well, I definitely agree with you on, I mean, holistic anything, really. I think we do very little holistic thinking uh, or even systems thinking, really, when we start talking about like political discourse. But I don't know, I kind of, I feel like an instinctual urge to push back a little bit on the sort of letting go of scarcity aspect of it, right? And perhaps this is just a limitation of my own propagandizing, right? But I mean, even like now, like we have these sort of large conflicts about energy distribution and management, right? And I'm thinking like with Voyager, they were constantly looking for trilithium. They never answered the question for how the Federation is doing this, right? But like, mm -hmm. you know, in the real world, we have like South America and Venezuela who are being ravaged because they have default lithium, right? Which we need for yeah. our batteries and for sort of our energy use, right? And I think really energy is like, I mean, you know, we have like the oil standard now, right? Like the petrodollar, which is sort of supplanted and then replaced the gold standard uh, after, you know, Reagan. Well, it turns out I can burn oil and get warm and then make it into plastics and shit. And you can't do yeah. any of that with gold. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's extremely useful at all of these massive costs, but I think it, it sort of illustrates the tenacity of uh, scarcity, right? If only because right now we are limited to, you know, the lithium on our planet. We're not out expanse style in the belt mining lithium from asteroids. You know, we're, we're kind of stuck with that real material limitation, right? And so like in the same way that like they might have like a space Venezuela in the Star Trek universe where they're just strip mining it for trilithium, like how do we get past that ourselves here with our energy consumption and the way we build things with plastics and like just sort of all of the ecological devastation we're wreaking just by maintaining those systems of production? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I both think it's important to push back. And also, I think to recognize that we've all been indoctrinated with like kind of liberal modernist thinking about everything. So I always come back to the importance of qualitative variables to anything that has to do with scarcity. So with lithium, in Bolivia or in some of the countries of Latin America and, and other minerals, one of the big problems is that the people who actually live there have been completely deprived of all human care and necessities. And they're just completely used for what their environment produces. Okay. I, I think that like there are questions there around participation in that process for the people that actually like coexist with these natural ecologies. I think there's a lot to be said there about are we just gonna like take their lithium and when when like everybody there, there needs schools and healthcare and these kinds of things. So the question there is like, how can we address and engage the need for lithium or whatever it else, any other kind of material or resource that we need that has relative scarcity? I mean, I, my point is that like, there, there's obviously constraints, there's always constraints, but I avoid the kind of absolutizing of scarcity as like something that's ever present and omnipresent. Scarcity is the law of economics, right? Because I think like, that's where the quality 
quantitative dimension comes in. And it's about like, well, how do we manage our waste? How do we produce things? Who is involved in that process? Can we do it differently? Can we do it more efficiently? Can we like distribute power in a different kind of way that makes this different? There's a I, lot I of questions. I just to break in there. here, Andre. I've, I've been getting, I've just got something for the finance department and they're saying, no, we can't change any of that. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Memo from the finance department. All right, the numbers guys, they ran it all through. It's just, nope. You know, the point you were just making, Andres, made me think about, a, this is another thing that maybe a lot of people don't pick up on if they don't watch Trek as obsessively as we do, but there's a shocking amount of forced labor in the Trek universe. Yeah. There's a lot of prison mines. There's a, like, um, you know, there's... Well, to be fair, those, those mines are carved out of stage foam, so it's not as dangerous <laughs> as actual rock work, but still, it's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of labor camps. She's right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not, it, it, we tend to also think of those as oh those are the the other quote-unquote backward societies that the uh, enlightened federation has to interact with no at the beginning of voyager janeway goes and gets tom paris out of a labor camp a starfleet labor camp so paris can eat 50 eggs (laughs) <laughs> so like i almost wonder like is the you know rachel talks all the time about how star trek is the west wing for for communists i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, is it is the missing ingredient here forced labor I, I, yeah it sounds it sounds like it and it sounds like in order to create the illusion that there's this post money system or that or that that's even something we want is <laughs> kind of like this other side where there's forced labor producing all of these things that the federation or different people in that system need to live in that in that world if i could plug a book my my friend and he's kind of like the social theory esoteric aesthetics genius of the mmt world his name is scott ferguson he wrote a book called declaration of dependence and um you, you know it kind of explores the metaphysics and the theology of, of the, all of this stuff and one of the things that he stresses is that we always should start with the whole even if it goes beyond like you know, if we if we move from the individual then our instinct i think is to think of the nation state okay so we're not thinking of individuals we're thinking of the country we're in and our country comes against and clashes or trades or does or interacts as in some way or another with these other countries that are outside and i think the flip there is to realize that there is no outside. We are always in a whole, whether we are aware of it or not. We're always existing in a collective whole that is both social and human and also ecological and cosmic. And, you know, within this whole, there are like these nested layers of participation that in today's world, we could say is like a household, a municipality, a state, a nation state, the world, whatever. And that the quality and the design of what interactions are like all are in these nested layers and the larger layer always has some kind of influence in the structure of the smaller layer. I don't know if that makes sense. It's all fractals, man. (laughs) And also, no, I have no idea what you said. You lost me when you kept saying that we were all in a human hole. And, (laughs) No, I, the, the hole is fractals, and the way out is simply slavery, man. Uh, no, I am in the <laughs> hole, baby. I am all, I'm deep in it. No, let's move on. Some of Stop my best being experiences gross, have been in a human hole. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about back it, that the best bucket, part baby. of life is in utero, which is objectively a human hole. Yeah, yeah, we all oh. have that in common. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a terrible. Please do something else. 
Let me ask about um, sort of a, an attitude or an assumption in Star Trek that I've noticed that has to do with explaining away the not really post-scarcity aspects of Star Trek, which is like, there's always this assumption that no one is really all that greedy. No one ever gets addicted to things. No one does anything to excess except when it's for the common good. And like, what's up with that? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think I think in even in a much more utopic liberatory society, we're still going to have conflict. People are still going to make mistakes. There's still going to be tensions amongst groups and whatnot. And if I could have a, I consider myself a socialist, you know, those are my values. I do think we need to somehow transcend capitalism and whatnot. But I also have critiques of and sometimes very strong critiques of the conventional way that communism, Marxism, socialism have been articulated, understood and constructed. And one of these critiques, I think, is that I think it's still kind of unconsciously attached to the same Lockean modernist fantasy of the Garden of Eden, that there was once a long time ago a bunch of indigenous people again who were in the forest just basically living utopia then money came along and fucked everything up and that was the fall of man and somehow through communism or socialism we're going to return to that eden and i think that's what you're describing there that sense that like all of a sudden we learn how to get rid of money and so we're all just back in the forest of eden and everything is for the common good Sorry, folks, the Binars hijacked our robot for recording and we had to uh, reconfigure a little, but we're back uh, and I'm continuing my point. You know, we were talking about the things people need and free time. Uh, and I wanted to bring up sort of a stump speech I have uh, that's based around this modern era philosopher and ethicist named Martha Nussbaum. And the gist of it is when we talk about like human potential, right, in terms of not just generativity and production, but, you know, our imagination, our curiosity, our artistry, you know, these just really incredible qualities that are sort of unique to our species that have allowed us to flourish and thrive and become this amazing force that we are, there are certain conditions that have to be met before people can reach, you know, in sort of the Maslow's hierarchy sense, I guess, self-actualization, right? And so in order for people to really reach their full potential and become, you know, these agents of creativity that birth all innovation and all technology and all scientific discovery and all art, they need to have and the first three are obvious, and the latter two are where people get kind of hung up. Food, shelter, healthcare, education, and free time. And, you know, those are all essential to this process, right? Because right now, as it stands, we have an innumerable group of people who are geniuses and visionaries who could be, you know, doing Nobel Prize winning work or inventing, you know, incredible things or dreaming up systems nobody's ever thought of. And right now, they're just being suffocated under this boot of capitalism, where instead of having time to, you know, tinker or research or explore or do whatever it is they should be doing in their best life. You know, they're dying of the plague working at McDonald's because the system decided, you know, the only way it could work is if people had, you know, a consistent boot in the ass. 
So is it just like a oversimplification of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that leads to this kind of like naive misunderstanding that, you know, if everybody's happy, no one will ever do anything wrong? I feel like it's a misconception and ignoring the pyramid itself, right? Like you don't care about the rest of that. None of that is actually matters to these people. They care about whether there is a meat bag in front of the machine or doing the whatever job, checking off the things on the spreadsheet that they said were the job so that they could securitize the futures of the company. Well, and it goes back to that same sort of philosophy we were talking about earlier in the episode, you know, where we really valorize struggle and suffering and, you know, we see a sort of purity in it. Like it's it's an ablution that we're doing to people to free them of their sin of sloth or something like it, it's its own religious quality. In defense of that theory, Metallica's albums got way worse once they got rich. <laughs> no, that's a terrible and that's not a real answer for this. It, it, like, <laughs> started, but it is it, like, the, but the idea of a starving artist sort of speaks to this as well. Like, oh, well, you can't make good yeah. art. Your life is easy. You don't know about it's like, no, no, good paintings happen by rich guys too. That's actually mostly rich guys. Mostly it's people laundering money at Art Basel now through their cousin that went to school and the actual great artists are, I don't know. Let's ask Andre something else because that's, can you, you want to talk about art? Uh, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Andres, do you know about Martha Newsom? I assume the answer to this is yes. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think she's one of my favorite philosophers because I, I think that her thinking is the, the kind of nuance that's that's so important today. And uh, I absolutely a- agree that we take for granted the importance of time, the importance of curiosity. Uh, I think the United, the West, perhaps in general, but definitely the U.S. in particular, we have like a very anti-intellectual culture, and sometimes it's even like across uh, ideological um, spectrum. Whatever, nerd. It's rare. Like, 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 no, not that, you know, every now and then, you know, there are these super cool people that are doing Star Trek podcasts. But in general, that's the exception. Do you think to... we could get them to come on to this one? <laughs> maybe. Or like, just like a crossover episode. Like, maybe we can get like Corey to go. She's definitely the most sociable. Like, we can like send Corey over and then she can just like mention our podcast. <laughs> Please go. Perhaps. On. Uh, and so I, I think like even across ideology, our culture is very skeptical of thinking and of curiosity and kind of like has a fetishization of just like the bare means and, and a fixation on like puritanism and hard work. I mean, it's it's the theology that that founded the country. I don't uh, need really. no egghead telling me how to worship the Lord. I'll read the book myself or <laughs> tell you what it says. Well, right. And to question is to abandon God, right? So why would you? Which is funny because like, actually, there was a a Muslim philosopher back in I think the 1400s, but I could be getting that wrong, named Ibn Rushd, or uh, he was also known as Averroes. And he actually wrote this like massive pushback at sort of, you know, the end of Muslim enlightenment, where this philosopher Al-Ghazali and occasionalism were on the rise, right? And sort of the, the beginnings of this sort of belief that it is only through God things become materially possible possible and every single thing is the will of God and like even when you light a candle it is angels sent by God to make the fire be born and the match or whatever is a prayer to them. Pushing back against that he wrote that there was a line in the Quran consider you who have sight 
that meant actually we have a moral obligation to question these things, to explore these things. And it, it got like snuffed out immediately. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so interesting to me that this has been almost a recurring theme throughout history of like humans standing up and saying, no, we should be curious. We should question. And then people in power saying, how dare you? You know, how dare you question, you know, our mm -hmm. authority, our security, our knowledge? How dare you, you know, shake our certainty of things? Um, and I, I can't help but wonder to what extent that's almost an intrinsic human fear of the unknown or of our own sort of meaninglessness, right? And the absurdity of our existence. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. I mean, I, I usually am pretty skeptical of definitions of human nature, like this is human nature. But if I had to choose something, I think that there is definitely an anxiety about existence that is part of who we are. Um, yeah, sight is a curse. Oh, you didn't want you didn't <laughs> go with my easy answer, which is chimps with shoes. Right. Well, I mean, do chimps fear their own death? Well, you they know? better start. I'm sorry. <laughs> Wow. I'm glad chimps aren't listening to this podcast because you would have just alienated our entire audience. Future chimps will chimps cancel will rip us. Your thumbs and dick off. They know about spite and the normal human experience. Like they get it. They like No, I mean they really do. And ultimately we are just fancy, really fancy monkeys, you know, who happened to develop this really complicated system of abstract representations and get really, really good at charades. We're super good at charades. And even then, though, I mean, that does stem from this, like, social aspect. So I don't know. I, I think it's yeah. like you were saying, you know, it, it's hard to characterize humanity as having intrinsic qualities because so often the neurological processes and cognitive processes are double-edged swords depending on context and either useful or maladaptive depending on context. Right. And, you know, we are quite ill-equipped to walk out into the world and make these decisions rationally. Yeah, and 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 we also learn. We can learn. We can we can change and, and mold and be malleable. And if we don't fully change, I think that it is possible for the generations that are, are coming after us to kind of shift a bit from what they see. I, I mean, in my experience, it's been very fascinating. I, I'm an immigrant to the U.S. and so my parents came here from Colombia as well when I was three or four years old. And it's a common story that you hear from other immigrants that parents have these certain kinds of ideals and dreams, and maybe they can't live up to them all the time, but they kind of really do everything they can to make sure that the next generation can be what they could not be. And I think that that story is, is quite powerful and, and part of our journey, you know, to even our limits and what we just can't quite accomplish. We try to, or we can, not everybody, obviously, but we can try to to set the the conditions and the context for those that are coming next to be able to yeah. to reach that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I still think there's a generational aspect to that too. And I say this because my grandfather was also an immigrant. Uh, he was a German Jewish immigrant. He escaped like right before the camp started in earnest. Uh, every family member he had back in Germany died in the camps. Uh, and the only ones who survived were the ones who came here. And he aggressively assimilated his family. Like mm. for him, doing better was blending in, was right. becoming the you know model citizen because that's what it takes to be safe. And I think a lot of people, you know, from that generation were sort of in that place of like 
community means assimilation. Community means not rocking the boat. Um, and I think actually, you know, Did in a way- Did somebody say assimilation? Haha, it's the Borg. <laughs> but no, and I think in a way, the sort of boomer generation, like our parents, they were new in questioning that. Uh, and Gen X sort of took that to the extreme and said, we're going to just check out altogether. But I actually think if you trace it back as sort of like an ethnographic history of how we got here, I think you can actually really see clear steps away from that idea that community meant conformity. Right. Yeah. And it's so fascinating, too, because, you know, full conformity into a collective like the Borg with its own toxicity and then kind of like this affirmation that there is no collective and that we are only individuals comes with other pathologies. And we've seen kind of generations slide back and forth and try to find, I don't know, I, I, I always, I, I don't think I want to like say that it's some middle ground or anything like that. But the challenge of like finding that the right amount of group collective integration versus differentiation in different contexts because it can't just be the same context in every instance that's also another <laughs> another yeah. challenge that we have <laughs> you know i wish we didn't think about this before but i'm gonna retroactively just you know breathe existence into it we need to have like a dialectic bell for when the answer is both like right. for the answer is both of these things. Okay. Yes. Okay, but then the, the the show will just be an hour and a half of a bell ringing. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> People love bells and air horns and vuvuzelas. Yes, and that's why they listen to the noise cast. It's a different <laughs> show. No, it's a terrible and annoying show. Oh, this has been a real fun. This has been a lot of fun. It's we're sort of rounding around to uh, you know, the end of our five year exploratory mission here. But we do always, of course, like to have a little fun. And we skipped our we skipped our uh, report up top. So I mean, normally we like to talk about, as you guys know, because you're longtime listeners, shows we're watching, stuff we're enjoying. And the thing we're going to do today, there's a lot of futures that came in the wake of Star Trek. And a lot of them were written by some of those writing teams with a specific eye towards problematizing this uh, sort of post-scarcity and sort of free resources solutions to uh, science problems and sort of space problems. So let's talk about worlds we've been enjoying that aren't Star Trek and sort of the distinct that sort of distinction. And I will open because I'm already talking. Uh, TNG very specifically bred Battlestar, which was not the Mormon one. And no, not the reboot of the original Mormon one, but the third Mormon one, which a lot of those writers came off of Trek having said, oh, well, I don't really like the way the outcome of, well, let's tech the start. We'll tr tech the tech again. And then the tech will tech, tech, tech. And then that'll solve the problem. So they're like, I mean, the third episode of the new Battlestar is water and they blow up their water tanks. And it's like, fuck, right. You guys are thirsty. What are you going to do? You're chimps in pants. But it's also a very, it is one of the ways you get to sort of that collectivist approach because it's not, it is not space communism, but it is also a wartime footing against a common foe. And I think that is uh, one of the sort of, uh, you sort of Watchmen provides this as a unifying mechanism. I think it's very, I think it's wrong because ultimately, I mean, the, sh the show deals with that and it falls apart. But that one particularly, yeah, the unified enemy never, it can't work because that is how we've done a lot of our wartime mobilization. So it's, it's a good idea if we were fighting a war on, say, human want instead of the robot soldiers we built that realized we were assholes and they're right. Sorry, I've got a Cylon and a Borg. It turns out somebody who's not a robot say something they like. Corey, you, you're a fan. 
Yeah. You're a yeah. fan of things. What do you got? I am. I, I am a fan of things and a fan of many things. And so actually I've, um, as, as our longtime listeners know, I have been working my way through a chronological viewing of Trek and I'm, I'm still plotting through that. However, I did take a little bit of a break. I got caught up and uh, was able to watch the most recent season of The Expanse recently and um, have also been getting back into a rewatch of Futurama, which is just glorious and has really a lot of ties in some ways economically at least to the expanse in that it's a future where corporations continue to rule everything and you know people are are left to struggle and are segmented into different subsects of society so i really especially the expanse both of those kind of are centered on this concept of space libertarianism. And while it makes a really delightful contrast to Trek, it also shows this kind of a a horrifying future where if we allow the Elon Musks of the world to define what the future of space travel is going to look like and space exploration is going to look like, we're going to end up with the expanse. I've said on this show before, like Trek is the future we want and deserve, you know, with the problematic issues that we've already talked about aside. But the expanse is more likely what we're probably going to end up with unless we can really radically shift our society away from capitalism. So those are just some thoughts I've been having about uh, space libertarianism. So I also just watched the most recent season of The Expanse, and I'm just going to do a massive spoiler alert here. This is massive because I have read all of The Expanse books that have been released, including the novellas, because I am a turbo nerd. Uh, I am the wonks, my not safe for wonks show is unsafe for actually, uh, and I am self-loathing, let it be known. But Corey, if you want to like drop out a little bit here, there will be spoilers. I don't know if you do or don't, but um, I don't I don't care. It's fine. I actually kind of disagree. I think Expanse is, or The Expanse is a story of how we get there to the gay space communist future we want. And I think it's actually very realistic. And one of the things that like most impresses me about The Expanse as a series is that it is so firmly grounded in the actual science we have available to us, especially in terms of like social behavior and cognitive behavior and human behavior. And the truth of it is, you know, in sort of the same vein of humans being sort of dualities, right, of being flipping coins at all times, we do have clannish tendencies. And I do think that it is very likely that once we sort of return to colonial behavior, we will see some of these problems crop up again. But also, if you look at the trajectory of the entire series, it is very clearly about how these political figures are participating in this process towards real equity and towards like that more just future. I mean, you can look actually in the expanse Earth has a UBI uh, and which sort of is that libertarian sort of approach to it. And like it has its own problems anyway, because there are still classes, right, between people who make it into the professional class and people who only have the UBI, who have their physical needs met, but it kind of stops there. And the sort of strange economies that arise when there are still luxury items in addition to, you know, basic needs being met by a UBI. And I think that's really useful to look at and think about because I think that ultimately is likely to happen. And so I agree with you, like the expanse is the future we're most likely to have. But also if we read the expanse, we can maybe do some troubleshooting ahead of time, right? Because I think their predictions for the kinds of problems we will face are very, very accurate. And if we start thinking about those now, then maybe we can avoid some of them. 
Oh no, hard agree on all of that. Anyway, I love The Expanse. I think we should like, I would love to do an entire episode just about The Expanse. Maybe we can do it like at the end of some like Patreon content or something. But like, I love that series with my entire nerdy heart. It's so good. Yeah, same. From a production perspective, and this again, well, this is spoilers for the ends of the end of the expanses, but this show has happened. We're recording this two or three months after the episodes came out and it's releasing even further from that. What? It's fine. You read about the guy getting canceled for being handsy. So they killed him off because and I think that like let's want to talk about that for just a second because they killed him off in like one of the most my favorite ways that they are the most poochy way in the world where this straight up no more radio contact and oh he had a stroke that could happen at any to anybody yeah. at any time and then in space but also it could just happen at any time yeah uh, but they had also done and they argued about this but this is like a legitimate concern they mentioned in the series as like a significant barrier to space travel is like the physical limitations of the human body's you know tolerance for acceleration uh, and so they had just done a bunch of really 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 high gravity maneuvers because they had just done a battle and the reason he had a stroke is because literally they were shooting themselves up with adrenaline so they could stay conscious so like he had a stroke because of like obvious real human weakness yeah but you but those you can i just like this as a way to write people off of any show to be honest because you could just go oh no he had a stroke which could happen to anyone at any time yeah even here in new york in a coffee shop <laughs> i don't i don't know i don't mind when characters just die i think that actually makes it a little more realistic Oh no, sometimes yeah. you just fall and you fucking hit your head. Well, this is, there are several yeah. scenes in that show where basic safety procedures almost kill people and it's a lot of fun. And you're like, no, you gotta stall your gear because we're in zero gravity. It'll float around. It's terrible. But on the other hand, they should have just taken the second guy off the casting list and called him and with an apology and been like, hey, do you want to do season six? We wouldn't, we would have been fine. It's a show. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, so what, what what's next up on the holodeck? Yeah. Well, I want to hear everybody else what y'all have been watching too, well, other than saying. just this big expanse fest over here. <laughs> we know we've stolen the good ones. We're sorry. I have never seen Expanse, so that show has just been totally spoiled for me. I'm kidding. <laughs> can you also hear me? Yeah, absolutely we can. We're just, uh, we're trying to feel less awkward about having ruined a very good franchise for you. Um, no, yeah. listen, it is totally worth the watch because the entertainment comes from how they get there, not where they end up. And that, that one of the guy ends up dying is not really that, yeah, you'll be fine. Okay. There's still okay, plenty cool. of television show to enjoy. I'm definitely going to check it out. It reminded me a little bit in the description from you all just now of uh, a movie with Matt Damon called Elysium, I think it was called. Um, that is, yeah, that is yeah, it is. There's some very similar thematic threads for sure. Got it. Yeah. It's got a Gundam feel to it and, as well. Oh, in terms cool. of like the late, well, I mean, the, the space colonists, the people that are mining the asteroids are going to end up having less political power than the people who have a planet with a gravity well. This is going yeah. to continue to be a, like, yeah, that, that issue comes up a lot. It's a good, it's a good tension to play with and people do well with it. They, they expand especially. And it's one of the reasons why I'm both skeptical and I fear UBI initiatives, because, you know, to my thinking, a lot of it is driven not only by libertarian kind of ideology, but it also is kind of setting up the world for this like, oh, yeah, you have your basic needs met, but all you do is consume from your UBI check and like the tech giants have control over everything else. 
it is kind of a shut up piece, right? Like, oh, you got your thing. Shut up. Go away. Yeah, right, right. Um, and you can't really, I mean, yeah, sure, you can, like, do some stuff with your free time with it. But, like, control of society, at least in my dystopia, fantasy, fear, whatever, is, like, it, you know, it, it's like the Matrix, right? Like, the machines and the tech giants and the Googles and all this uh, kind of already what exists. Like, they, they decide what's valuable, what, what we do, what we produce. They have all our data, et cetera. And we just, like, take our check and go to Walmart and buy stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe the technological leviathans who took Don't Be Evil out of their, you know, mission statement so that they could then go make drones for the military should not be in charge of things anymore. Correct, correct. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, when they said don't be evil, we should have said, hey, wait, what could y'all be doing that is evil? And then interrogated that further because it turns out it's like everything else. Right. And there, there's a there's a really cool TED talk. And I don't say this often about TED talks. The economist Yanis Varoufakis, who was uh, Greece's uh, finance minister during that whole crisis, he has this cool TED talk. And he talks about like our future being either the Matrix or Star Trek. And Matrix is like the dystopia and Star Trek is like kind of like the utopia. You know, there's some things I disagree with him on there, but I think it's like a cool analogy. It's uh, a better worse. The cut of better worse is very obvious there. Yeah. Right. And what I've been watching uh, is WandaVision, (laughs) actually. I got really into that show. Okay, Uh, you can trade me some spoilers here. What is this about? Be vague. Be vague. Yeah. Don't upset reality benders. They get sad in a very weird way. Ask all but 99 mutants. That's a comics reference. Sorry, please go on. Independent of like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe story stuff. I mean, it's a story about grief and loss and how we try to suppress those things by like throwing ourselves into false realities. I think like assimilation plays a big role in this and um, definitely themes about like the American dream and the perfect American suburban home and this sort of thing as a way to kind of shut ourselves off from the things that we've lost. So there's a lot of that in the show that I really found cool and interesting and then ultimately it turns out that there's a lot of witchcraft going on kind of shaping stuff in different ways and it's great for that reason because it's very emotional and i think like we're very traumatized as a society (laughs) and you know any 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 kind of like i i don't know you know (laughs) (laughs) any kind of political agenda for liberation or to overcome capitalism i think has to be very cognizant of human trauma of generational trauma and of grief and be able to develop and invest in the kind of care infrastructure to address these things in different ways. And I think like that's like fundamental to what we could call like a revolution. Yeah, I just watched, and I promise I will explain how this relates to what you just said. I just watched Judas and the Black Messiah with my boyfriend a couple uh, nights ago. And it is also very much about grief um, and about the way violence and death can draw out, you know, the worst, most desperate parts of people. And yeah how people break under sort of this incredibly oppressive pressure and sort of the tragedies that arise around that. And so, you know, you talked about how we will sort of need this process for grief. I am reminded of this movie because of sort of these aspects of grief. And also uh, because one of the things that they sort of showed in it was this uh, reference to the Rainbow Coalition, which included, you know, Puerto Rican people and the Black Panthers, and then sort of this, you know, white pride type group of Southerners who were literally 
literally showing up next to Fred Hampton wearing a Confederate flag pin. Uh, and my boyfriend paused the movie at that point to talk to me about this. And my boyfriend, for context, I don't normally mention it unless it's like directly relevant, but is a black organizer. And he is really into sort of the history of black organizing. And he said, people don't know how to do that anymore. You know, people don't know how to sort of grit their teeth and talk to somebody who has these deeply asshole beliefs and see through, you know, these other tensions to see the trauma and grief on their side as well. And I think there is something, and you know, I I definitely see how people have opinions on either side of this. God knows, like I'm a Jewish person, descendant of a Holocaust survivor who has experienced that intergenerational trauma firsthand. And I certainly have strong feelings about people who intentionally dress up like Nazis. And I definitely don't ever want to like say somebody isn't entitled to, you know, the anger and resentment they feel about those symbols, because I get it. But as I have sort of aged in my own sort of understanding of like restorative justice and a focus on healing and on creating community instead of sort of just winning, um, which I think are two different things. I have found myself softening towards people who have those kinds of really fucky beliefs, right? Like I no longer shut down if somebody says something anti-Semitic. I no longer shut down if somebody says something sexist, you know? Right. And, and I think there is something in that process of like grieving where, you know, we can be helping each other, you know, by validating the grief and the pain of the other and by, you know, in ourselves, unpacking that grief and that trauma and really like finding within our own healing a new patience. And I don't know if that mm -hmm. makes sense. It's very like, you know, hippie, like welcome everybody, true like love energy vibes kind of stuff. And I know it's never really that easy, but I, I think you're really onto something with the healing from the trauma and also I want to offer up sort of, I guess like this just alternative, you know, as a way that we can approach healing our own trauma and also not just healing the trauma within ourselves as individuals, but within our community that has turned us into adversaries. Right. And, and, and how difficult that is, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the kind of like Fred Hampton's legend because he was able to grit his teeth and push through that, right? And like create that common ground. And I totally understand why they frame it as a messiah thing because like, yeah, like that is the kind of like superhuman empathy that is just, it takes so much work. I'm not even particularly good at it. I just sort of stand in awe of it. Right. And then there's something, I, at least for me, to be said about like how that at least is approached because, mm -hmm. you know, I like not too long ago, there were like these people on Twitter who were like, yeah, Fred Hampton did this. That's why we should unite with the alt-right against right, the Democrats. Right. And it's like, no. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. No, no, no. Those are no, not the no. right people. This is more like uh, the libertarian capitalist to libertarian socialist pipeline, right? Like there are people who aren't actively against you. They're just really ignorant of you. And I mean, I think this is sort of a common human experience, regardless of political affiliation or even like political identity. Like we tend to otherize each other. And psychologically speaking, the best way to push through that and to heal that is to build things together, you know? Yeah, no, it, it is. And it's kind of just like, how do you do that without accepting or, or conceding to or appeasing, you know, fascism? 
Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately it's about just like boundaries, you know, right. and, and, not, and that's right. not easy, right? But it is simple, right? It's about saying, this is my line in the sand. I will never be okay with you talking to me about this in this way. Like, right. here is why this is where I'm coming from. And also this project that we're working on together, I'm going to keep doing it anyway, because I know that by getting to know me as a person, your views will change. Um, and I mean, that doesn't mean invite the Nazis in, right? Because that's a terrible idea. They literally want to kill you. Like... <laughs> But it does mean ally with the Romulans against the Dominion. Well, yeah, but it also means like if you are, for example, like a white person, a cis person, a straight person, and you are in a group of people who are expressing, you know, racist or homophobic or cis sexist or, you know, trans misogynistic ideas, right? Instead of getting angry, shutting it down and leaving so that you can, you know, I guess build that sort of block between yourself and that person who you don't want to be. It's about gritting your teeth and being a good ally and showing up for the people that they are actually harming and saying, we're still going to work together, but I'm going to keep talking to you about this because the way you're approaching this right now is hurting people. You know, and you can say like, you can say truly like, I don't think you're doing it on purpose. I don't think you have hate in your heart, but I think there are some things that you don't understand about this group of people. And I would like to keep talking to you about it, you know, and that's really, I think the crux of it. it it's not about forgiving your personal oppressors or victimizers, but instead showing up for the people who you have this common ground with who have these terrible ideas. What's about me? The cishet white guy going, I'm sorry, why do you believe that? And then unpacking yeah. that nonsense because they, yeah. just, because they might tell you and then you go, okay, but that's all stupid. Have you not thought about your boss is that yeah. person and not like maybe our complaints about like, yeah, you don't have to make your anti-capitalism and anti-banker rhetoric anti-Semitic. Careful, yeah, it's yeah. real close, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. And steering, I don't know, I, but... Oh, yeah. And I mean, in the meantime, we build these coalitions of people who, you know, are enough of the way there that they at the very least know how to say, oh, shit, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that that was hurtful, you know, and to actually get that kind of feedback and just sort of maintaining this communication. Like you were saying at the very beginning of the episode, Andres, right? Like this is all a series of social agreements and symbols that we are constantly trying to agree on, you know, and I think we have room within ourselves. And especially if we want to reach our gay spaced commie future that we so crave, you know, to start building that at the micro level, you know, just by finding patience within ourselves for people who have kind of shitty beliefs. Because hmm. if we want communism, we got to build communities. It's like right there in the word. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's really powerful. Once again, Rachel has pulled her patented, extremely earnest, very uplifting, not at all funny exit, which is definitely I'm something. I'm sorry, but I'm not no, that I, sorry. I understand. No, I never, <laughs> I'm not complaining about it. It is just the lack of comedic value to genuine sentiments and true and earnest, though they may be. Um, I think there's a call to action hiding in there, too, is that when you are silent or when you just like fall out of an environment where someone is being bigoted, you allow that person to assume unanimity of thought on the part of the people in the room. Yeah. And so just like, just don't do that. Don't let your silence, let them assume that bigotry is okay and everyone agrees with them. Yeah. And, you know, don't be violent about the correction, you know, parry them instead of blocking them when it's possible. Take that extra bit of effort to really give of yourself and of your time. Uh, and also, I figured out exactly how to make it funny. Uh, Amy, can we get a bong rip? There you go, man.
It's like fractals and it's about love. And I guess money, I don't know. I would honestly, I'm still kind of in the camp of, I don't know that money is the most useful way to track these things. But I do, I do think everything you said about what money is in practice and how it works is super important and super accurate. And before we completely uh, abandon Amy to the wolves here, Amy, what have you been watching? So I've started a new um, fully RNG based Star Trek watching, but in between those, I've been watching uh, Winona Earp again, which, you know, is a really, really cheesy show, but it's also about a woman who comes back to her hometown and kills her demons. And there's a lot of othering and, uh, and a lot of that kind of like Withering Heights-esque playing with how people are treated based on how they are othered. Well, you just got Janeway's attention. Mm-hmm. Oh, Talking gosh. about Weathering Heights. Oh, no. Ultimately, the takeaway here, gang, I think is that you don't have to love money, but do keep her number in your phone because she's going to keep money's going to keep calling you for a little while at least. So best not to burn the bridge yet. I have no idea. I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to. It's Star Trek. You're supposed to talk your problems out. Ultimately, this is why we're here. I think. Yeah, but we're very happy to have had you, Andres. Can you where would you like to be found? Do you have anywhere you want to put your Twitter? What do you do? Where should people go look at your what's it's? Yeah, you could find me on Twitter at Andres in Theory. Which is in the show notes or whatever the thing is that's in your app if you push the little button next to the picture. Um, Anything else you want to keep an eye out? You got somebody, are you working with candidates this year? Anybody coming up? Yeah, I'd say definitely keep an eye out and check out uh, the website for Diane Morales, who's running for mayor of New York City. Big transformative agenda, talking about a care economy, talking about, you know, transforming education, reintegrating education, fighting for housing as a human right, big environmental municipal Green New Deal agenda. So good stuff. And you could find her campaign at Diane.nyc. Well, and this is just such a perfect opportunity for me to plug our other show, Not Safe for Wonks, and also the Not Safe Media Network, uh, in particular because Not Safe for Wonks is a political interviews show where we specifically interview candidates, and I am definitely going to be hitting you up about that interview after we finish recording. Uh, But also because we think that this kind of content and this kind of leftist media has been missing from entertainment and from media production. Uh, And, you know, we really got into this project not just to talk about gay space communism, but to really you know, create the media we wanted to see by organizers for organizers and to sort of further these causes. So if you, the listener, would like to keep sort of abreast of the very cool things the network is doing, that is at NSF Wonks on Twitter. Uh, you can also find us at notsafemedia.com or notsafemedia on YouTube where we do live streams and we've been clipping them out. Thank you, Amy, for all of the clipping you do. And also the network has so many other great shows on it. We have hot girl agenda we have a time of monsters we have this show we have post-tech radio and so 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 many things psychic dolphin garage plays minecraft on our streaming sometimes it's a big giant family cooperative of turbo nerds and leftists trying to you know just do leftism in practice uh so subscribe to us there on youtube follow us on twitter and if you happen to have a couple extra bucks you know maybe you're finally seeing the far end of this covid crisis and you have some money again go to patreon.com slash not safe throw a couple bucks our way we use it to pay for all of these platforms to pay for our publishing and you know eventually if enough people do it to pay amy for the clipping here here there you go 
If you're further interested in paying me, look at me a hassle on Twitter. I'm going to start doing variety show live streams on Friday and or Saturdays on YouTube. And it's going to be music and, you know, especially of the fellow workers variety. Yeah. So, well, you can find me on Twitter at CM Archibald. I'm pretty straightforward that way. And basically, I just tweet about salty politics and occasionally animal photos. Uh, and you, you know me, I'm Paul Byron. I'm on Critical Bits every other Tuesday, Earth's favorite anti-fascist teen superhero actual play podcast. And I'm at, at hashtag subtext on Twitter. And I'm do this. It's fun. And, you know, if you, for some ridiculous reason, find my sincere, you know, pleas towards humanity's better natures interesting, you can follow me uh, on Twitter. I'm at ReachRachelCon basically everywhere. I love you all dearly. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much, Andres, for everything you've contributed to this episode. It was a great episode. Uh, I'm sure we would love to have you on again to talk about literally anything. Uh, I'm gay. I'm space. I'm oh, oh, Corey's space. We're both space. We can both be space. And when you think about it, we're all communism. communism. <laughs> yeah. Well, may you navigate your ship through the great material continuum with entrepreneurial spirit and grace. <laughs>